Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Instead of turning to the book of Judges, we're going to take a break from the book of Judges for the month of December. I would like you to open your Bibles to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1. John chapter 1. One of my favorite Christmas carols of all time is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Glory to the newborn king. I think it's one of the most theologically rich of all of the Christmas carols. Listen to the second verse. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. That one verse teaches the virgin birth. It teaches the incarnation of Jesus coming in the flesh. And most importantly, it teaches the deity of Christ. Christ, the everlasting Lord. It says, hail the incarnate deity. And so Christ is to be loved, to be worshipped, to be praised. This past Thursday, I did a YouTube debate. I don't do these often, but I did a debate with a guy who is, quote-unquote, a biblical Unitarian. He does not believe in the Trinity. He does not believe in the deity of Christ, and he didn't really believe in the authority of the Bible. And it was kind of sad to spend two hours with him on a YouTube debate to find out where he stood on some of these issues. And, And so as I was preparing for that debate... I have to confess, I tried to kill two birds with one stone. So this morning's message is a lot of material I used to prepare for that debate, but in a different format. We're not going to get as technical as we did on that. But what I want to do this morning is we, we lead up to Christmas. I want us to explore, and over the next few weeks, we're going to look at some theological, some biblical truths about who Jesus is as our Messiah. And so what I want to do today is I want us to examine four truths about the deity of Christ Christ being fully God, that come directly from the New Testament. That was basically what I had to prove in my debate. Does the New Testament teach that Jesus is truly God? And the answer is yes. And let me give four truths this morning that will help us understand that. So here's truth number one, and it's right here in the first verse of John. John's prologue teaches that Jesus has always existed as the eternal Son of God, sharing full deity with the Father. So let's read John 1, 1 through 3, and notice how it starts very similarly to the book of Genesis. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the light was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
In the beginning, sounds a lot like Genesis, doesn't it? How does Genesis 1, 1 start? In the beginning, God. God is assumed in the beginning of the Bible to already be existing. In the beginning, God. But here you have, in the beginning was the Word. That's another name for Jesus. Jesus has always existed. Now I want you to notice the language here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was God. Now, that's a past tense verb. I could say it like this in English. I was at the store yesterday. I was excited that the Broncos won this past week. I was at Sam and Louie's restaurant this past week. And all those are completed actions where I went someplace, and then I stopped being at that place, and I went somewhere else. An action came to a conclusion, and there was a time when I wasn't at the store, and I went to the store. There was a time the Broncos didn't win, and they won. There was a time I wasn't at Sam and Louie's, and I was. But that's not the tense of the verb that John purposely uses here. He uses a Greek tense that means continual action. So you can translate it this way. In the beginning, the word always continually was existing as God. There never was a point in time where Jesus came into existence. I asked this guy at my debate, when do you think Jesus came into existence? And he said, at his birth. Right here it says Jesus has always existed. He was with God in the sense that he's a distinct person from the Father, but he has always existed as God. There, there never was a time where Jesus was not. He always has been. He's not a created being. He did not come into existence by God creating him. He is the eternal Son of God. So that's truth number one, just the prologue of John, just the language that John uses, Jesus has always existed. But I want us to take a journey through the Gospel of John. Here's truth number two. Jesus consciously identifies himself as the I am, thus affirming his deity as God. We sang earlier today the great I am. And where does that come from? Where does this language of the I am come from? come from? Well, it comes from when God approached Moses at the burning bush all the way back in Exodus chapter 3. And what did God, this is Yahweh, God, the Lord, Jesus is not on the scene yet in the Old Testament per se, what does God, the Lord, say to Moses at the burning bush? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, He has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I'm to be remembered throughout all generations. What's your name, God? I am. It sounds a lot like Yahweh. Yahweh, the Lord. And you can translate that Hebrew word I am three different ways, and it's very interesting. It could be translated, and I think all three of these are accurate. It could be translated, I have always been who I've always been. Stating God's eternal nature, I have always existed as God. I've always been. From everlasting to everlasting, I've always been. You could also translate it secondly as I am who I am in the sense that I'm the one that defines reality. I'm the one who is compared to all others who are not. 
And you can also translate it, I will be who I will be. Speaking of God sustaining himself into the future as the eternal God. No matter how you take it, God is saying, I am ultimate reality. I am from everlasting to everlasting. Isaiah 42.8 I am the Lord. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. So God does not share his glory with anybody else. He's the great I am. Interestingly, Jesus, in his earthly ministry, on seven occasions, uses this I am statement purposely to show that he is, in fact, God in the flesh. We don't have time to look at all of the I am statements this morning, but let's just look at a few of them. So turn to John chapter 6. This is right after the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus walks on water, so we're going to be in John for a few moments here. So just turn over in your Bible. So, so John 6.33. This is right on the heels of, of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you, you've not seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. I am. Now, why does Jesus say, I am the bread of life? If you go back to the Greek translation of the Old Testament, I'm going to get a little teaching here. It's called the Septuagint or the LXX. It's the Bible that Jesus and Paul used in their day. It was the Old Testament Hebrew Bible translated into Greek. And when you go back and you read that Greek translation of the Old Testament and you go back to Exodus chapter 3, guess what it says? How is it translated, I am who I am? Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the Greek and it sounds like a, it sounds like a waffle, okay? Ego I me. Sounds like Lego my ego, Okay. In the Greek, it's ego, I mean, literally means I, I myself am. That's exactly the same exact language that God appeared to Moses and said, I, I myself am. Just I am. N nothing else filling in the blank. I am. Jesus takes that same expression, the same Greek construction, and says, I am. And then he gives these seven statements. I am the bread of life. I am the only source of sustenance. I am the only source of salvation. I am. Now, if you're a Jewish person listening to this, you're going to get a little uncomfortable because Jesus is basically saying, I'm equal to the I am that appeared to Moses. That rankled some feathers of the Pharisees so much so that on multiple occasions, they wanted to kill him because blasphemy, saying that you're God, was punishable by stoning. And Jesus does it all the time in the Gospel of John. Okay, let's look at another one. So turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. I know we're doing a little bit more turning this morning than we normally do, but it's fun to hear the rustling of pages as a pastor, to hear your Bibles rustling. John 8, verse 56. John 8, 56. Again, Jesus is talking to the religious leaders of the day, and I want you to notice the language that he uses. John 8, starting in verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. 
So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I, do you see it? I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Before Abraham, they're like, you're not even 50 years old yet and you've seen Abraham? Come on, Jesus, give us a break. And he says, no, before Abraham was ever on the scene, I am. I am. And what do they want to do? Pick up stones to kill him because he's blaspheming in their mind. You go back to Luke, Leviticus 24. You go back to Deuteronomy 13. If you use the divine name, I am, you would be stoned to death. And that's basically what they wanted to do to Jesus. John 5.18 says this. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus is consciously using the same terminology of the I am to show emphatically that he is God. He is fully God. Now there's something very interesting that happens at his arrest. So let's go see what happens when Jesus gets arrested. So let's, this is the last place. Not the second to last place we'll look at in John. So go to John 18. John 18, this is where he's washed his disciples' feet. They've had the Last Supper in the upper room. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then Judas is betraying him and brings the Roman soldiers. And, I, and you don't quite get this from your English translations, but I'm going to show you how it's constructed in the original language so you can see the force of it. So let's read John 18, 1 through 6. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook of Kidron, where there was a garden where he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And then look at verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, because he's omniscient, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said to them, let me give you the literal translation, I am. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Who are you looking for? We're looking for Jesus. And what does Jesus say? I am. And what happens they fall back on the ground. They're cast to the ground. Just the power of Jesus saying, I am, somehow miraculously, these Roman soldiers fall back. So the second reason why we can understand that Jesus is fully God is because he consciously, time and time again, equated himself with being God by using these I am statements taken directly back to the Old Testament, I am. Jesus is the great I am, God in the flesh. Well, let's look at truth number three. Thomas's confession of Jesus as Lord and God attests to Christ's full deity. Remember, Thomas was not there when Jesus appeared the first time to his disciples. And so the second time, Thomas is recalcitrant. I'm never going to believe this. I'm from Missouri. You've got to show me. I'm from the show me state. You've got to show me the nails. And so what happens? Let's go to John chapter 20, verse 24. John chapter 20, verse 24.
Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger to the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who've not seen and yet have believed. My Lord and my God. Now the guy I debated with was confused by this passage. He kept saying, I kept bringing back this passage, and he kept saying, I don't understand what flipped the switch with Thomas. I don't, I don't understand why Thomas was so enamored by Jesus raising from the grave. And I'm like, I was about to say, dude, <laughs> you've got the resurrected Christ right before you. And notice what Thomas says, my Lord and my what? Now, notice what Jesus doesn't do. Jesus doesn't say, wait, Thomas, whoa, stop, stop, Thomas. Don't you dare ever call me God. Only the Father's God. They've been trying to blaspheme me for being God. Don't you dare call me God. That's going a little bit too far, Thomas. Please don't worship me. Please don't bow down to me. I'm not God. I'm a created being. I'm just merely a superman. No, Thomas knew that Jesus was a man because he'd seen him eat. He'd spent three years with him. He knew that he grew tired. He knew that Jesus was a man. That was not the issue, but now he calls Jesus my God. That's important coming from a Jewish man because this Jewish man had grown up his whole life in the synagogues reciting what we call the Shema or Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. So what's Thomas doing here? He's saying to Jesus right in front of him, you're my Lord and you're my God. Jesus has always existed Jesus consciously referred to himself as the I am, and then Thomas bows down and says, my Lord and my God, and Jesus doesn't correct him. He receives the worship because he is truly God. Now, that's the gospel of John. Just That would be enough. We just had the gospel of John. But here's truth number four. What about the rest of the New Testament? The epistles, the letters, the rest of the New Testament affirm the full deity of Christ. I'm going to read these and not give a lot of explanation, but I just want you to be aware of some of these passages. So Colossians 2, 8 through 10. This is Paul. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you've been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. The whole fullness of deity. Now, Paul purposely uses the word deity. He could have used a different word, divine nature, to show that Jesus is fully divine. But there's places in the Bible where humans are called partakers of the divine nature. First Peter says we've been partakers of the divine nature. Kind of when we're regenerated, when we're born again, we kind of take on somewhat of a divine nature and that we've had a change, but, but, so, but we're not divine. We, we, we kind of share in some of the, the blessings of God. So Paul could have said all the fullness of the divine nature dwells in Jesus, but he doesn't use that. He says all the fullness of deity. 
Everything that's God dwells in Jesus bodily. All right, what about Titus 2, 11 through 14? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. Okay, what are we waiting for? The appearing and the glory of who? Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Who are we waiting for to come back? Well, we can understand we're waiting for Jesus, our Savior, to come back, but how does Paul say it? Our great God and Savior. He calls Jesus God and Savior coming back. Okay, what about the writer of Hebrews? Some would say it's Paul. We really don't know. The author's anonymous. But Hebrews chapter 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He, his Son, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After he made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Now, that word radiance only shows up here in the Bible. And let me give you an illustration of what this word means. All right, boys and girls, let's do a little science experiment. Does the moon give off light itself? No. The moon reflects what? The sun. What gives off the light? The sun. Okay. Does Jesus merely reflect the glory of God? Or is he the source of the glory of God? He's the source. The word radiance here does not mean reflection because we as humans can reflect God's glory. We're made in the image of God's glory. That word is only used there for Jesus. He's the radiance. He's the shining forth. He's the source. He, he alone can radiate the glory of God because he is God. He doesn't reflect it. He is the source of it. So, so Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. Okay, what about 2 Peter 1.1? 1, 1? Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing, with ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, Jesus being God and Savior. And then I think 1 John 5.20 is, is fitting. 1 John 5 ends the bookend of John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. How does 1 John end that bookend? We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He, who he, Jesus Christ, is the true God and eternal life. Close case right there. Jesus is the true God and eternal life. True God. So there are four key truths in the New Testament that prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is, in fact, God. Fully God, true God. Not only that, the historical creeds and confessions of the historic Christian church have confessed this throughout the past 2,000 years. And I want you to notice, we're going to look at some of these, we're just going to, I'm going to show you just a few of the creeds and confessions. I want you to notice the language. They use the language true God or truly God. That's purposeful in the ancient creeds and confessions. So what about the Nicene Creed? Nicene Creed says we believe in one Lord. 
Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. Jesus is true God from true God. Okay, what about the Chalcedonian Creed? We teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man. He's truly God. Okay, what about the Athanasian Creed? The Father's eternal, the Son is eternal. The Holy Spirit's eternal. The Father's almighty, the Son is almighty, the Holy Spirit's almighty. Thus the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Yet there are not three gods, there's one God. That's, that's the biggest Trinitarian creed that we have, the Athanasian Creed. So those are the ancient creeds. He is fully God. Okay, what about the Heidelberg Catechism? One of the Reformed Catechisms of the Dutch Church that came out. It's very popular. Question 15. What kind of mediator and Savior must we seek? Well, here's the answer. One who is true and righteous man, and yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, one who is at the same time true God. Okay, question 17. Why must he at the same time be true God? Answer. He must be true God so that by the power of his divine nature he might bear in his human nature the burden of God's wrath and we might obtain for us to righteousness and life. Okay, what about our confession of faith? Here in Emmanuel, 1689, Second London Baptist Confession. Chapter 2, I mean chapter 8 on Christ the Mediator, paragraph 2. This is what our confession says. The Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, is truly and eternally God. He's the brightness of the Father's glory, the same in substance and equal with Him. He made the world and sustains and governs everything He's made. Okay. Big deal, Pastor Sean. You had a, you had a YouTube debate. Woohoo! What difference does it make? Okay, so, so let's talk about implications here. What are the implications or the ramifications of Jesus not being fully God or Jesus being fully God? What difference does it make? It makes a lot of difference. It makes a huge difference. First, only God in the flesh could obey the law perfectly in thought, word, and deed. A mere man could not do that perfectly. Only God in the flesh. Only God in the flesh could offer a perfect sacrifice of infinite value. Only Jesus, when he died on the cross as fully God, could offer an eternal sacrifice. And only Jesus, as God in the flesh, could take the wrath that we deserved infinitely. So here's the point. If you don't believe that Jesus is God, you lose the true Jesus, you lose the true gospel, and you believe a false teaching, and thus it is damnable to your soul. 16, 17 years ago, we had a couple that was coming to our church, and the, the husband was very skeptical, and he wanted to make an appointment with me, and came into my office. This was over at the old building. Changed a few pleasantries, and then he sat down, and he looked me in the eye and said, can I be a member of your church, Pastor Sean, if I don't believe Jesus is the Son of, or Jesus is God? And I politely said, well, no, you can't. I believe he was a good teacher. I believe he was a moral man. I believe he's a good example, but I cannot come to believe that he is God in the flesh. Will you let me be a member of your church? Now, he was trying to be antagonistic. And I said, I'm concerned about your soul 
Because before you become a member of the church, let's not worry about that. Do you believe that Jesus is God? Let's talk about salvation. The deity of Christ gives you tremendous assurance that you will stay saved to the end. One of my favorite statements of Jesus, and we talk about this a lot here at Emmanuel, is from John 10, 27 through 31. This is Jesus. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one's able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Why they pick up stones to stone him? Because he says, I and the Father are one. So if you're a Christian here this morning, you are in the grip of Jesus, and you're in the grip of the Father. You're in a double grip, and no one can take you out. Why? Because Jesus and the Father are not only one in purpose, but they share the same essence of being absolutely God. Now, what should these truths about the deity of Christ produce in you? Well, first, they should inform your mind to know Jesus more accurately. You want your mind informed. You don't want to be worshiping falsely. You don't want to uh, imbibe false doctrine you don't want to be worshiping a false Jesus. You don't want to be led astray by, by falsehood. So, so yes, you need to have your mind informed. That's great. But that's not all. Second, they should inflame your heart to worship Jesus more passionately. That you know that Jesus is fully God should not only inform your mind to be like, that's, that's truth, but it should inflame your heart to say, you know what, I, I need to worship Jesus. I'm going to fall down at the feet of Jesus. He is my Savior. Your heart's warmed. Your heart is strongly tied to Jesus. And then third, they should influence your will to obey Jesus more consistently. Yeah, it's good to have your mind filled with true theology. And it's good to have your heart burning with love for Jesus. But where the rubber meets the road is when you live it out in obedience to where your will is in conformity to the Lordship of Christ. What's the greatest commandment? We read it earlier. Let's, let's see what Mark's gospel has to say in Mark 12, 29-30. Jesus answered, The most important is hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. How can we love a God we don't know? How can we love a God with every fiber of our being, with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, if we're not worshiping the right God? That's the greatest commandment. If we get that wrong, everything else fails. Jesus is God, the fullness of God. Now, let me give you a famous quote by C.S. Lewis, and when I gave this quote, my debate opponent got really mad at me. He actually said it was hateful, and he actually said that it was the worst thing that could ever be said. So let me, you, you ready for me to read what was said? It's by C.S. Lewis. It's a famous quote from C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. Okay, here's what C.S. Lewis said. There are some that say I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. How does C.S. Lewis answer that? That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. 
you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. He's either a lunatic, he's a liar, or he's Lord. So as we begin the Christmas season, and especially as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, may we be like Thomas and fall on our knees before the risen Savior and make it very personal. My Lord, my God. May our minds be informed to know Jesus the Son more accurately. May our hearts be inflamed to love Jesus the Son more passionately and may our wills be influenced to love Jesus the Son more consistently. So he is the great I am. Let us bow and worship Jesus and we can say he is my Lord and my God. That's my prayer for you this morning. I I pray that every single person that leaves this place this morning can say in your heart of hearts, Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my God. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together and to worship our great Savior, Jesus, our the eternal Son of God, that you've always existed as our infinite, eternal, powerful Christ. And yes, there was a time where you came in the flesh of the virgin And we don't fully understand all the ramifications of what it means that you were born of a virgin, that you're fully God and fully man. We just know that you you are God. You're the great I am. You are Lord and God. You're our Savior. You're our King. And as we celebrate communion together as a church family, it's a reminder that we're not worshiping a mere man. We're worshiping God in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us who shed literal blood and died a literal death and took literal wrath in our place. And only you, Jesus, as God, could do that. We thank you and we love you. Would you prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper with joy this morning because you are king. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.